Hi, and welcome to Movie Fail Podcast. Uh, this is Soren Howe, and I'm here with Josh Rosenfield. Uh, and we're going to be talking about uh, Game of Thrones. Um, we're getting ready for Season 4, which is starting up uh, this coming Sunday. And so we're excited uh, to sort of see where this new season takes us. But before we get into that, we wanted to just do sort of a recap about the first three seasons and see what uh, we're expecting for uh, Season 4. So uh, I guess we'll just st- to start off um, as sort of a preface... Uh, I have not read any of the books in the Song of Ice and Fire uh, series, but uh, Josh has read all of them, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, we, uh, so we're coming from two different places, but we promise we won't spoil anything that, is, uh, that comes later, that comes after uh, what's already aired. Uh, we will spoil, obviously, things that have already aired. Um, but if uh, I'm I'm in the same boat as everyone who is hoping that um, people who've read the books don't ruin the uh, future seasons for uh, for me, so um, I, I totally get that. Uh, so anyway, Josh, do you want to start? What? How do you feel, especially as somebody who's read the books? How do you feel the first couple of seasons have uh, sort of done done the books justice, or, or or what? You know, I think they really have. Um, I'm actually I didn't start the books until at some point I think it was right after the first season finished was when I started the books. Um, and then I think I'd finished most of them by the time season two came about. So yeah, I, I do think they do them justice. And I think it's a good format to adapt these books because they are dense <laughs> books. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot going on. So it's definitely instead of doing like a movie you know, or something. Yeah. The Harry Potter books are long, but you can do the whole story in a movie because you can get the basic plot out. But th- these books have so many subplots going on that all do tie in and are important that you really do need 10 hours for each book or even more as we're getting with season four. Right, right. And and that's actually something interesting because, uh, and of course, this is something neither of us know, but uh, George R. R. Martin seems to think that uh, the conclusion of the series might work better as a movie, um, which I guess is something that only he could possibly know given the... Yeah. You know, given he's the only one who seems to have any idea how, where the series is going. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, yeah, no, definitely. It seems like the, that kind of book, uh, or that kind of series where where uh, there's just too much content, uh, even more so than, like, Lord of the Rings, where, you know, three movies was arguably enough to cover a lot of the material and get the general story across because it's a lot more focused. This is so sprawling and, and huge. Yeah. Lord of the Rings is a good example because um, with those books, it's like, all right, you maybe you like Tom Bombadil, and that's fine, right. but he's not necessary to movies. Right. You lose him, and you know, you're not really missing anything to the story. Whereas uh, George R. R. Martin, for as verbose and you know, you know, and lengthy as these books are, really, almost every detail really is important. You know, he really is. There's really nothing extraneous. Uh, to these books, well, when you, they had argued about uh, books four and five that um, they got kind of plotting, and uh, I actually do kind of agree. But um, definitely, these are these are books that you know, you need someone, you need people running the series who pay attention to this kind of to those details, and who aren't just looking to, you know, see oh well, what are the things in these books that will sell, and you know, and what are the best parts that we can do. Uh, David Benioff and D.B. Weiss, who are the showrunners, they definitely, you can tell they have not only a love for the series and an appreciation of it, but they have a really <laughs> extensive knowledge of it. Right, right. Yeah, and, and and I guess the other thing that's helpful is that they know how the series ends, so they have a some yeah. idea of what's important and what needs to be in the, the, the books or in this show. 
um, from the books and what what maybe doesn't because it's not going to lead more directly to the uh, to the conclusion of the series. Um, and in some ways, I guess that's sort of telling for the anybody who's reading the books and trying to see where this the, the um, where the story is going because you know if it's in the show, then it's probably really important um, as long as it wasn't made up for the purposes of the show, as opposed to um, some of the the plot lines that haven't uh, shown up in the uh, the show yet uh, that were that were in the books. Like there was a whole plot line with um, with Dorn that they seem to have dropped. Um, and so there's, um, so there's, so there's sort of these plot lines that are, uh, hugely important, or it seems like they're very important that the, um, it seems like the show has sort of, uh, skirted it and not really taken into, uh, into consideration. Yeah. And it's def it's interesting to think about that because if you are someone who's read the books, um, it's kind of, it's, it's kind of unique the way that this adaptation is working because, it's not just, you know, it's not just adapting. It's actually working kind of in Congress with the books, especially as the show starts, gets closer and closer to catching up with what's been published. Right. So I know, like, um, there, there, you know, there's characters in this upcoming season who haven't been cast, and I expect that's because there's theories that those characters are secretly other characters, <laughs> that, but that hasn't been revealed in the books yet. Uh. Um, for instance, there's a good example of this is um, Barristan Selmy, uh, from I think season three, he came back right to Daenerys in the books. That reveal took a very long time. Like he was under another name, advising her for a long time. And book readers don't know because Daenerys obviously doesn't know who Barristan Selmy is. Ah, so it's not till he reveals himself that you realize, oh my god, that was that guy. But, but when you do the show, he has to do it right away because you'll recognize him. But doesn't Jorah know that? Um, shouldn't he know who he is? I mean, in in the in the show, he seems to know who he is instantly. He's like, oh, you're you're Barristan Selmy. And... I don't remember. I think maybe he, or maybe he does and doesn't tell her or something. Maybe he does and doesn't tell her. I don't remember how it plays, how thoroughly that that aspect of their relationship plays out. But yeah, I remember taking, like, it wouldn't be till like midway through season four if it was a direct adaptation. But it can't work because of just the format. Right, right. You would never unless somebody was behind a mask. There's no way to really cover up their identity. Yeah. Um, although, I mean, you. As an audience, you would know, but she still might not know. I mean, you could still do it where she doesn't know what his name is and know that he's, you know, this other character that we that we know as an audience, but that she has no way of knowing. And so, like, they could have done it like that, where it's it's more of a uh, we have a privileged sort of view um, uh, that the uh, that the character doesn't. So that they could have gone that way with it, but it turns out, I, and maybe it wasn't a huge uh, point. It wasn't a major plot point. Yeah, it it works without. Uh, without that reveal, I think. Um, so yeah, no, I, I, uh, it's interesting, and it's interesting in these, you know, sort of the, the you talked about it's working in Congress with the with the books. I, I feel like it's working almost in parallel because of some things that have changed. Not quite the same as say The Walking Dead, which apparently has characters who are dead in the comics and not in the show, and vice versa, <laughs> and all these things. Where so it's like uh, sort of an alternate universe version of the same basic idea. Um, this is this is, but this is in some ways, you know, sort of parallel in that there are characters like i know Braun when he's in season three he he gets a whole bunch of or maybe it's season two he gets a whole role that he didn't have uh as the captain of the what is it the the, the, city. the king's guard in the, the show i think was it king's guard or the city guard or the city watch i think it was the, it wasn't in the city guard yeah it was in, yeah city the city watch right so so yeah. he had this this role that was that was somebody else's but they you know it's like how many extra characters do we need so they they sort of hybridized him yeah, they um, they do that in they've done that in other places where they just kind of 
they can't instead of introducing an entirely other character to do this one thing, they'll just have a character that already exists to it. Right. Uh, which I think is is good for simplification, especially on a show where there's just so many characters, and that's you know the running gag about Game of Thrones is there's a hundred and fifty characters, and you it's hard to keep track of them. Exactly. So and so adding more when of you them, can right. to consolidate. Right. Right. And and there's even characters that have similar names, and they had to change the names because they were too yeah. similar hearing them as opposed to reading them, and. And uh, but I think as long as it fits the character, and I thought the sort of the sort of irony of the of Bronn, who's like this, you know, sellsword, you know, uh, mercenary type guy, uh, getting to be in charge of something official, uh, and and sort of not taking it as a as a total joke, but um, it it just seemed to fit with his character, where where you wouldn't necessarily choose him for that, but because Tyrion had the cho- option of making him. Uh, the city, the city watch. You go. It, it seemed very natural, like a natural progression. So I was, I was actually surprised when that was not how the book had chosen to deal with that that particular moment. So, and it's also interesting. You know, you have to wonder how much George R. R. Martin sort of retconning his own work and saying, "Well, yeah, that would have been cooler, wouldn't it?" Um, yeah, especially and, since he writes, he's written one episode each season. Right, and he's like a consultant type person on the show. I'm sure they they ask him every now and you know, like, would it be okay if Braun was like the guy? Because we don't, yeah. you know. Um, so. So you have to wonder so how much of it is, you know, pe- him going back and, see- and seeing these things and saying, well, that was too complicated. I should have simplified that or, or whatever. So it's an interesting sort of, uh, uh, you know, opportunity to get a different look at the show for people who have, who have read the books. The, uh, so how, how do you feel about the, the, first, um, the first three seasons? Or, or we can just go season by season. How, how did you feel about the first season uh, of the show? Well, the first season was the only one I watched for the first time without knowing what was going to happen because of the books. Ah. And when I, I first started to pick up uh, on the show, like it was becoming a bigger thing, after uh, episode nine where they where they killed Ned, that was a huge deal. Like I had not really even been hearing that much talk about the show up to that point. Mm-hmm. But when that happened, obviously, everyone was like, oh my God, I cannot believe they did this. And I heard that and I was like, oh, I guess I should start paying attention. Right. <laughs> and yeah, so I, when you, and then when you go back and... Uh, when you watch it for the first time, not having read the books, it's, you know, even knowing it's going to happen, you still can't believe that it actually happened. It's such a, I think it's a really great choice and a really bold choice. Um, and they haven't really broken it yet because I think like their shows and the walking dead is getting there. Um, or it's, you know, they do this thing where they kill a character and it's like, see, anyone can be killed, mm-hmm. but then they just keep doing it over and over and over again. And it just starts to become meaningless mm-hmm. because it's like, well, new, a new character is going to come in in the next episode, we know, because to replace them, because that's right. what always happens. Whereas Game of Thrones, you know, they, you always feel like um, when a character is lost, not only is there a loss to the show, like the show is now missing something, mm-hmm. but their death has an impact, a widespread impact. And that was definitely true of, of Ned's death, I mean, obviously yeah. it's, it's kind of, you know, the inciting incident just for the whole series. Um, so it's they have they've been doing a good job of that with even killing as many characters as they do. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree. The I think the the um, first season, um, from my perspective, so I also I hadn't read the books and I wasn't a um, uh, and I and I sort of just picked up the show because I had heard some good buzz about the first couple of episodes. Um, so I started watching maybe two or three episodes in, so I was, I was right there at the beginning and I was blown away by the production design. I was a huge, I'm a huge HBO fan for Mm -hmm. like their period pieces. I, I I always use an opportunity to bring up Deadwood because I I adore (laughs) that show. Um, Deadwood, uh, Rome. Uh, so, and so these, these, these shows are so, 
um, uh, lavish and well-made and, and high production value and interesting that I, I was all over a, a fantasy series and I hadn't, um, I didn't know anything about A Song of Ice and Fire, but I was, I was, I was down for whatever they were going to do. Um, so I started watching the show and I was floored. The first episode even is just excellent. And, and for me, um, having come from Deadwood, which I feel is, is just so hard to match in quality, um, and Rome, which is also an extremely good show, uh, I was I was uh, pleasantly surprised by the fact that season one for me was that good. It really is a just a pitch perfect. The pacing's perfect, and and so it you know it's working along, it's getting its 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 engines up, and then by the fifth episode you just want to see the rest of the season. You know, you know yeah. things start going poorly for Ned. That's when I think he's attacked in the uh, in the in um, King's Landing by by Jamie, uh, and that whole scene. And then after that, you're just you know things are going to go terribly, and you're really excited. And meanwhile, you have the threat of the White Walkers in the background, which is how the the whole series starts. Um, and so for me, that was that was amazing. And, and I actually, when I got to the finale, I liked episode nine, Baylor, but I thought the final episode—I forget what it was called—Fire um, and Blood. Fire and Blood yeah. was absolutely the coolest. I stood up and applauded. I've never done that to a television <laughs> show. I was so excited by. I was like, there, there's no way they're going to go the route of, you know, these CG dragons. There's just there's no budget for it. It's just not possible. And dragons aren't a thing in this series. Like, it's it's like fantasy is a backdrop. But then it just, they did it. And it was mind-blowing and awesome. Um, and so I absolutely loved the first season. I thought it was it was just impeccable. Um, I was less enamored go, going forward. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, so I, I, I really enjoyed the first season. I'm, and I, uh, I was glad that I, I picked it up. Um, uh, and it sort of got got on board. Yeah, the very end of the first season, the final scene, I think, is is very important to the show because when you think back to it, up to that point, um, it's fantasy, but it's really not. Like, there's no magical exactly. elements, really. There's no, there's really no magical creatures like a dire wolves, but that's not like a fantastical, unbelievable creature. Right, right. Um, so yeah, it really is just kind of a medieval society but a fictional one but then when you then you get those dragons you're like oh wait this is a fantasy show for real yeah like it's no joke right and then you when you can then you can move into season two when you can get uh melisandre and uh the warlocks of cards right. and you know that right. kind of stuff and it's actually it's interesting because um those are the elements i so i loved how they they sort of dip their toes in it in the at the end of the first season <clears throat> and that was actually my problem with the second season is that the um these magical elements felt like they were being introduced um, uh, sort of all over the place without a lot of explanation. You know, there was there was a huge build-up to the dragons. You had seen these eggs for the whole first season. You were sort of hoping that there was a thing that was going to happen here, and you knew she was, you know, a Targaryen, that da- Daenerys was a Targaryen, and there was this sort of uh, backstory to her. But um, and but you weren't really sure what was going to happen, and then just boom, you get this um, these dragons, and it's awesome. But then there's this, you know, there's the the Melisandre and this this weird shadow baby thing, and <laughs> and this fire god thing, and and as somebody who's now seen all of the series all the way up to you know up through the third season, I'm still really confused. And and people have told me that I don't know if this is true, but people have told me the books also offer not as nearly the amount of explanation you might want on these fronts and so um but for me it's it's frustrating because there was it was so well 
set up and then executed in the first season. And now I feel like these things just come out of nowhere. And it's not even like a plot point, you know? I mean, somebody, you know, they end up... Um, uh, it does. It, it fits the plot a little bit, but it's not like a. It's not like a get. It's, they're not using it to get out of a, a corner or anything. Ooh. It's not. It's not a, like a major point in the series, um, for a lot of these moments. But I just. I don't understand why, where, or how, or what the logic is behind these these magical elements. So I'm. I'm really confused. And then the other thing is these. The other thing that we did know was a little weird was the White Walker thing um, from the mm-hmm. first episode. But that's another element that was mentioned in the beginning. It's in a little bit of season two, a little bit of season three, but is so seems so removed from the show. And and I liked it as sort of a like a driving force behind the first season. But like winter is coming as a mantra, really only works for me when you know like now I don't care that winter is coming because it seems like <laughs> it seems like you know ten years from now winter might come eventually maybe and then we might have to worry about the White Walkers. But for the moment. It's like, sort of, you know, a dropped storyline. So yeah, I'm, I'm kind of. It was a weird. It was a weird transition from the first to the second season. Yeah, well, the White Walkers. It's tough because, and um, and the others. It's tough because um, you have all these different POV characters in places like King's Landing and um, across the sea in Essos and stuff. But we really only have uh, John and Sam at the wall. And that's the only place that interacts right. uh, with that just that side of the world. So while we're meant to understand, yeah, that's a that's like a big like the wall is enormous. That's a whole half the continent that's just covered in snow, and you know with the, the with these ice monsters. Um, yeah, obviously we don't see it because the characters don't go over there because there's ice monsters. Right. <laughs> so it's tough. Yeah, and there's is this kind of thing. Really, in in seasons two and three, it becomes about. Um, uh, oh God! What can I? What are they? Yeah, uh, uh, Mance Raider and the the. Oh right, the, right, the wildlings. The wildlings, yeah. yeah. I don't know. That slipped my mind. Yeah, it becomes a really they're the bad guys beyond the wall. Um, and the White Walkers are not even kind of a presence. Right. Um, and that's all. Yeah, that is true of the books, and and the magic as well is something in the books that just kind of is acknowledged as it happens at the beginning of the second book, like because there's this thing with there's this thing with the comet. Um, right. The second right. book opens with all these different characters looking and seeing this comet and interpreting it different ways. Like in uh, King's Landing, they say, oh, because it's red, it's Lannister red, it's be- gets to show that, um, you know, that uh, the Lannisters are, uh, you know, good and, good and powerful or whatever. And, um, you know, different, and uh, other people say, is, oh, it's, you know, it's be- it's showing that evil and, and war is, is coming and um, someone... It's Osha, the wildling, who's with Bran and Rickon at that point that says it's because there are dragons back right. in the world. Right. So there's this implication that's not really there that the dragons being born somehow brought back magic. Magic. Interesting. It's not explicit and it's odd. And then when especially when you get to like the different religions of Westeros, like um, what Melisandre does, she says, comes from uh, the Lord of Light. Right. So, you know, basically the two options are either she is just, she just has magical abilities that she has, or the Lord of Light is literally real. (laughs) And and we get some evidence for that with... um, Yeah, we get a lot of evidence that that's the true religion. Well, 
whether or not it's the you know it, it might not be the only religion but it's certainly this this red god seems to be real Con yeah. considering people are coming back from the dead there's this weird shadow baby thing you know we don't really know what the the story is um and i was thinking about the the white walkers and how it's sort of like the really it's the biggest problem for everyone and and everyone's squabbling over things like the throne and and political power and and all that uh when the white walkers are a far bigger concern and everybody yeah. should be worried about them um to me, it's. It, I wonder if it's supposed to be an allegory. I'd never considered this, but uh, for for like uh, environment, something like an environmental sort of bent, where, you know, everyone in the world is is worried about, you know, more immediate problems like, power and money and things like that in in the real world, and um, and yet you know, a, a, like a massive flood or uh, you know these these huge problems, you know, global warming and all these things, uh, are really far bigger concern to all of humanity equally. Uh, than anything that they could be possibly worried about in the in the short term, um, and so I hadn't really considered that. But I, I wonder if that was perhaps part of uh, George R. R. Martin's uh, idea uh, ideology behind that, that. Yeah, I think it absolutely is, and I think even further than that, the White Walkers are kind of a metaphor for this idea that while you get wrapped up in these kind of petty things that really don't matter, you're not paying attention to this really big threat that's actually out there that's really what you should be focused on right. and that especially is is true because um um the wall isn't uh it's not run by the kingdom it's independent and the kingdom sends them you know supplies and stuff because they want them to defend the wall right. but like if it's in they're not loyal to you know when the when the war of the king the five kings breaks out they're not loyal to any one king necessarily so it's interesting because all these kingdoms are fighting over the throne, but that doesn't include <laughs> the that doesn't necessarily include the wall, which is really the most important thing that any king of Westeros should concern themselves with. So I, you're, I think you're absolutely right that there is kind of a metaphor at play. Yeah, no, absolutely, and it's interesting because I just hadn't considered it, but it's that sort of that dichotomy of long term, but much more important than short term and, and immediate goals. So. Um, so that's interesting, but yeah, and, and and it's so so moving into the second season, I and 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 into the third season, it's just there's a lot of these, and I actually preferred the third season because it had less of this, mm. um, but just this over overabundance of 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 magic, uh, and all these things. I I really liked the fact that Game of Thrones was a was a show that put drama in the for the forefront, not soap opera drama, but just drama, um, in in the forefront. And political dealings, and then had magic sort of play a, a backseat role, but it's definitely a thing. But it was sort of the background, and so it, that the fantasy sort of took a backseat to the to the main uh, sort of genre, uh, which would be drama. Uh, um, it, it's the same with Firefly, and uh, I would say Deadwood. Deadwood's a western in in dressing, um, but it's it's certainly a drama first and foremost. Um, and I would say Game of Thrones still is. Um, uh, but it, it just, it feels to me like it's taken more of a center stage, the fantasy elements, uh, and with not a lot of explanation. So for me, I'm, I'm, I'm a little, I was a little reticent on that. And the other thing is, with the way the first season ended, and, and this is the, this has been a problem with the series for me, um, each finale, I didn't love the second season finale, uh, I actually thought it was rather rushed, um, but uh, each finale ends on such a high note, and the, the last few episodes of each season are so intense, um, that coming back down to a very basic, low-key, slow uh, intro episode every single season, where the first five or so episodes are just people talking and not much happening, 
um, feels really jarring to me as a, as a viewer. And I don't, I'm, I'm, the books might be like this as well. Um, but they it's are. tough. Yeah. Right. It's tough. I mean, I still haven't applauded at the end of this one season. And then we go to season two of just people talking and, and <clears throat> I don't have a problem with, you know, not, it's a glib sort of, but you know, this expositional type dialogue with people just, you know, Catelyn talking about how she's, you know, worried about her, you know, kids and she doesn't want to do this and the other thing. And just, it just, for me, it didn't, um, it just feels really like the contrast is way too high between these high octane moments and these, these really slow moments. And each season has that, that sort of hill that it just ratchets up about halfway through. And then the next season drops back down very suddenly to like a very low, slow thing. Um, yeah. I, I think that's the danger of ju uh, the trade-off of doing the adaptations the way they've done them so far, which is one book per season, mm -hmm. because when, you know, when you're reading a book like this, that's what a lot of it is. You get a chapter of just kind of the characters talking and then, doing little things and building up to this big finale at the end, um, which is why I'm curious to see how you react to season four because it's season, split. Three, right. yeah, season three did not finish book three. Mm. So there's the climax of book three is going to be the beginning of season four. Interesting. Um, those those would normally be the last couple episodes. It, it'll start with those. So it should, I think season four will be very different just be, just because of that. And because, um, it's going to start, it's going to break, I think season four, I predict, is going to break from the book per season format entirely because the characters are at a point where they're so far apart from each other. Right. Like the whole, since episode one, all the characters have just been, you know, spreading out farther and farther away and getting more and more individual storylines. So because of that, um, the timelines start to get out of sync, especially on the show. Right. So I expect a lot, a lot of characters are going to be starting book four stuff in this upcoming season while some other characters are still on their book three stuff. So on the show, I don't make, you know, sense in terms of continuity, but it's going to be a very interesting shift from the books. And I think it's going to free them up to not be beholden to that slow at the beginning. And then the big bang at the end structure. Right? No, I absolutely, I think that's, that's very, and it's true. The fourth season is supposed to be um, a mix of different uh, elements from other seasons. And they've already run into that a little bit, the timeline problem. Um, I know they, there was the whole part where they where they took Winterfell, um, where uh, uh, um, the Winterfell's taken, and, and there's this whole like timeline thing that wouldn't have made any sense, where people travel what seems like a day, when it really <laughs> would have taken weeks to get from point A to point B, um, but they're trying to sync things up so they make it look like it's the same time, um, but then they run into problems like I, this was a huge problem with season two. One of the this was this was the the slow part of season two was. I loved Daenerys' uh, storyline uh, in season one, and that was the most compelling. I mean, with the Dothraki and and Khal Drogo and all these awesome things, <laughs> and and then it ends on her, which is awesome. Um, and then her in the first five episodes, uh, Daenerys in the first five episodes of, of season two is just wandering around a desert, you know. And and I get that the timeline wise that probably made sense, but every time we saw her, she was just they were they were hungry and they were looking for things to do, and they don't get to Karth until about halfway through, you know? Um, yeah. And like I said, that makes sense in the, in the books, I guess, uh, or to, to sort of sync up those timelines. But for, for me as a viewer, I was just so uninterested in her storyline. And I was irritated because I knew I liked her character and I do still. Um, but I was like, if, if she's not going to do anything interesting, you know, all the things she did in the first five episodes could have been in one segment 
and you could have focused on other characters more if that was what you needed to do and we'll just wonder what happened to her and then come back to her later because i mean it just it was it was it was the structuring was very strange yeah it's tough when you get when you have a book uh where because book two a clash of kings daenerys really doesn't do much of anything like you say this about season two they actually added stuff for her to do in season two because wow. there's so little of her um because most most of it is just little bits getting her a little bit further along the journey to the stuff she gets to do um in, in the season in book three and, and four uh, she's actually in that in book four or five um so yeah it's, it's really difficult um and you really in a book you can you know if you're a reader you might not notice when you're going from chapter to chapter and it's point of view each chapter is told from the point of view of a single character right right so you might you know you're reading at your own pace you might not care that you're oh you might not even notice you haven't seen daenerys in a while but on a show if it's been three episodes and there's daenerys hasn't been in any of them you know viewers will pick up on that so it's tough as a showrunner to be like well you know what do we do here we don't want to there's only so much we can add but we you know it's, it's just it's just tough it's tough, and and the other problem is, and this is uh, this is a product of it being a TV show. But Amelia Clark, uh, people really like her. People really like her character, um, and so they they feel like they have to capitalize on her popularity too. You know, you know, mm. Tyrion Tyrion became really popular, and so they and he is a big part of the books. I know, but uh, and he's popular in the books. Yeah, he he was the fan favorite character in the books, and now he's in the show. And now he's in the show, and and Peter Dinklage is just absolutely one of my favorite TV performances of all time. I, I, I adore him. Um, but he, uh, but, but, you know, you have this problem of, you know, you have these characters. First of all, you have a big, a big name, like, like Peter Dinklage, who is a very well-known actor. Uh, mm -hmm. And you have Amelia Clark who wasn't until the show, but now she's, she's a, a hot commodity. And so people are, um, uh, I feel like the showrunners feel like they need to give them screen time because they're so popular. Uh, and, and less screen time to other characters, even if those characters, the, you know, the, the popular characters don't necessarily have something to do. Uh, and I feel like that, that might be, um, that was a, something of a problem in season two. I thought season three was better about that. Um, there was, first of all, there were things for Daenerys, Daenerys to do. And, um, uh, and it, it seemed to, it just, the, the arc seemed less jarring uh, for that season. Um, it didn't quite reach for me the same peak that the first season did. I guess because everything was new and interesting and uh, and exciting, but uh, but I'm still I'm still compelled to watch. Um, I will confess that the red wedding was spoiled for me in a um, in sort of a glib sort of way. My uh, I was talking to somebody who had seen the show and they they said um, I said there was a there was a one of the reasons it had taken so long for George R. R. Martin to write uh, the most recent Game of Thrones book or Song of Ice and Fire book was that he had written whole chapters and whole storylines with this one character and then had forgotten that they had died. Um, and so he had to go back and fix all of that. And the person I was telling this to said, Oh, I wonder if it was Rob. Oops. And I was like, really? That's yeah. And that was at the end of season two. So I, I was just sitting around waiting for him to die. Um, I didn't know about Catelyn. I didn't know about a lot of these other characters. So that there's that advantage. Uh, oh, actually I did know about Catelyn. The same person sent me a video that referred to zombie Catelyn. And I said, oh, that's, that's great. So, uh, oh, the carelessness, yeah. Oh, yikes. <laughs> I, was, I was not happy. Um, but anyway, so, so I, uh, I, that, was, that was spoiled for me a little bit, but the moment was still great. Um, 
it was it was a well executed moment. I, it wasn't quite as powerful for me as I, I guess the first season uh, it, with with Ned Stark because you, he's really he feels like the protagonist, um, whereas here Rob is like a peripheral sort of character, Catelyn sort of peripheral, um, or not peripheral but just one of many uh, characters. Um, so yeah, no, it's it's um, it was a uh, but I, I thought the third season ended well. It had a much stronger finale than the first. The first season. The other problem with the the pacing though is that when you when you there's no excuse for a cluttered finale I mean, the, the finale for season two they had to extend the episode by 10 minutes and it was and it was already just why there was so many things going on there was like 15 different climaxes um and for me that's not really excusable when you have five episodes in the beginning where nothing is happening you, you should spread it out a little bit if it's if you're going to be cr you know rushed at the end and cram it all in why don't you fill out the other episodes where less happens with more content. I mean, it just seemed like a very odd choice on the part of the, I don't know, I guess it's the writers or the, uh, the showrunners. Um, but that was re that's really my, my gripe with the show is, is that the endings are awesome and feel rushed and the beginnings are slow and feel empty. And so you're like, well, what's the, you know, there's gotta be a better balance, I feel like. Um, yeah, especially because um, the pieces uh, on the proverbial chessboard are only moving so much in these first two seasons. Right. Uh, whereas they really they're really starting to pick up now. People are really starting making uh, stronger decisions and doing a lot more. So I think it's going to become more palatable. Whereas yeah, it's even at the beginning of season three with Daenerys, she spends four episodes buying. It takes her four episodes before she gets the Unsullied, and like that literally could have been five scenes in the first episode. <laughs> Right. So, well, I mean, and, and to be honest, but I did like the, you know, people are trying to assassinate her. Like, there were little good cliffhangers. And, and that's, I, I really would be fine with little cliffhangers, even if they're red herrings and don't lead anywhere. Like, the, the assassination thing wasn't a huge deal. You, you sort of get the impression that it has to do with Westeros or has to do with something and you're not really sure. But it was enough intrigue to be like, ooh, I wonder, I can't wait to get back to that storyline, but we can put that aside for now. Um, because the threat was thwarted, but you're still w worried about um, Daenerys's life or whatever. Um, the problem with the first, you know, starvation as as awful as it is in the real world on TV as for a dramatic purpose or thirst, yeah, you know, I, I don't really care. You know, it's it's not. I don't think a character is going to die from exhaustion in the desert after you've just spent a whole season. So it's not. I don't feel worried. I'm just, you know, if there was an active threat to her life in like another character or an army i might be more concerned but yeah that's that's definitely i think that that's a problem with daenerys's storyline in the books as well and it's where a lot of people have complained that she just um that she doesn't do much <laughs> so, and so that's definitely i think daenerys is an issue and especially because daenerys is the only one uh, the only character on the other side of the sea right now right so everything else is taking place in westeros so we don't we're not seeing like a direct impact that she's having other than people in Westeros are talking about her dragons and like she's kind of known. Um It is known. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um yeah. So yeah, it's um definitely I think they're they're trying to uh build to that and try to make sure that the audience <laughs> make sure that the audience thinks that that some kind of big big move is imminent and so some kind of big thing is always going to happen everywhere even if it's not because now the audience is going to be expecting uh especially after the red wedding i think people are kind of going to be expecting these bigger 
things happening. Yeah. So I think it might be even be smart of the show to open up the season with a really slow episode where not much happens. Because then people will feel like you do and be like, oh, all right, we're doing this again. But then be like, then bring it right back and be like, you know, nope, we're doing this huge thing. This huge climax, right? In the next. Yeah. Well, you know, and that was the other thing, too. I mean, um, uh, I'm forgetting his name. Who's the, who's the character who dies from the Shadow Baby? Renly. Renly, right. So Renly dies in, like, what is it, the second episode or first episode of the second season? Yeah, it's like, yeah, it's early on. It might be the first, even the first episode. And it was so, and that's the other thing, too, is I'm not looking for sudden. I've just, it's like, it's excitement tension levels that I'm looking for. So it doesn't need to be, like, a game changer right away. I just, just, the, it's the excitement level. Because Renly dying came out of nowhere, and so I was like, wait, what? He just died? The, it seemed like a, like a something that would have been in the season one, or the, not the season one finale, but... Pretty early on, you know, it, or it, part of a, um, it seemed too early on, given the, like, there was no setup for it. It was just, here's this character, Melisandre, you just met her, and now she's giving birth to a shadow baby, and there's no explanation for what's going on, and now she's killing Renly, who you had, like, five minutes with in the first season, and you should be worried about other characters. And I met people who were genuinely upset that Renly died. <laughs> who, they were like, I know someone who's, that, that was their favorite character. I don't understand how that's possible, given his short time on screen. Um, but for me, I was just like, you know, like, meh, you know, okay, yeah, another character died. And then I started getting the impression, and this, this leads back, actually, into what you were saying earlier, and I actually feel Game of Thrones has this problem, of uh, investment in characters. Uh, I'm invested in Tyrion uh, because I don't think he can die because he's so popular. And I'm invested in Daenerys because he's so she's so popular. I just don't think she can die. Everyone else, I don't invest in because there's no point. They're just gonna die. I have no I have no uh, illusions about that. And for me, I just expect everyone to suddenly get killed by an arrow or something absurd. You know, even in the next episode. So um, I actually feel like, for me, someone like Joss Whedon, who does kill popular characters, characters like Tyrion, who are very popular. But he does so with infrequency, so it comes suddenly. But it doesn't feel like there's no point in in investing in those characters in between. Here, it feels like the deaths with George R. R. Martin are so frequent and so often, and they're so important supposedly within the context of this universe that I don't feel like a reason to really invest in them all that much. Yeah, well, I think part of it is that I, George R. R. Martin's view of um, just the way the world works in regards to death is definitely kind of like some people die and just it doesn't matter. <laughs> like that happens and we don't remember those moments from the show maybe, but it's like there are characters who get offed and it's just, well, you know, people die every day. That's what happens. Um, so that's definitely something he does. That's why he gets his reputation for killing off so many characters. And he's, I think it, I like, I agree, but it's, it's true, but it's also kind of funny because like, that's more realistic in this situation than none of the characters dying or few of the characters dying because this this is a country in war. Oh, I so, agree. You know, Re you know realistically, I mean? realistically, I totally understand. And realistically, a show like Firefly makes very little sense. You would never have a crew of people able to just skate around the universe with no consequences and never die. But, but you also have to consider the contrast of realism, which honestly, if the show's going for realism, I don't know where that's coming from i mean yeah well, I... um but 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 uh the it's the constant 
death, while it makes sense in a quote-unquote realistic world, um, tension is, like, diminished. It almost has an adverse effect. It's not like, I'm not, like, worried all the time someone's gonna die. I just expect it. I'm just, you know, I wasn't, I didn't invest in anyone who's died in the past couple of seasons uh, because they're just, they seem like, um, I mean, post-season one, I guess, mostly season two, season three, because it seems like characters just die left and right. Um, so it's sort of, I'm watching sort of from a, a removed standpoint, unless it's someone like Tyrion or, or Daenerys. Yeah, it's a tough thing to balance. I think it's difficult just as a viewer to, you're right, to, to be aware of your position as a viewer and know just kind of inherently what the show is and what it's about and that these characters are probably going to die. And, but it's, and I think it's tough to balance that with, you know, trying to watch it uh, and trying to get invested despite that. And um, I, don't, I don't know, maybe, I don't know if it helps or hurts to, to have read the books. It might, it might hurt because you literally know what's going to happen or that might help, actually. It might help to just enjoy this, uh, the story more because you're able to uh, anticipate it but also not, which is this is an interesting thing I want to talk about, just from my position, having read the books. Um, this show has been really good about keeping in those shocking moments, even when they could have been, they almost would have been expected to not, right? Like, the first the first thing, especially with, with Ned's death, I think a lot of people were expecting them, because they cast Sean Bean, and he's on all the posters and everything, oh, well, you know, well, maybe they won't kill him, maybe they'll just, like, do something else. Right. You know, but and then when it actually happened, I think what's great is that book readers were as shocked as the non-readers because they expected like, the TV show to be different, right? Exactly, like oh my god, and that's book readers are still being shocked by that. Like, um, there was a lot of talk. I remember last season when Jamie's uh, hand gets cut off, mm -hmm. there were a lot of people who were like, "Oh, they're not. They're probably not going to do that. They don't want to do a thing every episode from now on where he doesn't have a hand." And so when they did it, it was like, "Oh, they actually did it. <laughs> that's insane." Yeah. So now it's kind of like the surprise is what they choose to do and what they don't choose to do and the way they choose to do it because they do change certain things in terms of how events happen. Right, certainly, but I think those moments are really key. I mean, the hand thing is important for Jamie's development as a character even just in that season. And so for me, that that sort of thing, it, and it's cool that they're doing that, but it must also be nice as someone who can invest in a character now. It's sort of like you're rereading the books, and so you can be like, oh, I'm going to follow this character because I know they don't die. So I can, <laughs> or at least as far as I know, you know, it's up through book five or, or whatever. Um, I know they're not dead yet, so I'll invest in them because there's no point in investing in character A, B, or C because they're going to die very quickly. Um, and so maybe you got, you know, and that's the other thing, if you've really read the books and you're watching season one, then uh, I imagine, you know, you're you're probably laughing that Ned's focused on so much given his ultimate uh, sort of payoff. Like now going back, it's funny watching it. Well, funny, haha. Uh, watching season one, if you've already seen it, because you're like, sitting there the whole time going wow ned you're really trying but it's just not gonna work yeah well it's it's tough because it's as when you know well especially that's the thing really knowing what's going to happen it's tough to watch ned do what he, do the things he does and right. say, oh if you had only done this everything would have been okay if you had only done this but then of course when it comes down to it there's really nothing he could have done because when he was it turns out no matter what he did Joffrey was going to kill him and that's what's hardest about it because as many places as you think he could have avoided that fate 
it was really unavoidable. Well, it was also unavoidable because that's his character, and that was another. Yeah, exactly. That was another reason he needed to die because a character like Ned Stark. Honestly, I don't understand how he survived as long as he did, <laughs> at all. Um, maybe it's because he was removed and got to run his own little fiefdom, but uh, he's a uh, a good guy, and and good guys don't seem to exist in Game of Thrones. So, um, you know, he was always looking for justice and honor, and you know, he's like, I got to figure out what the mystery is here because it's. You know, it's a matter of principle, and you're like, mm, yeah, I don't. Doesn't seem like they care. <laughs> I don't think they care about these things in King's Landing. Uh, so, so it was important that he died, just because it was, and it was also, you know, people were like, oh, it's, you know, it sets up a, you know, it it marks the way this world works that good guys die and bad guys win, you know, and all of that, and and I get that, and you know, I, I honestly appreciate the sort of the blurring of morality lines, like, is Tyrion really a good guy? I mean, he does a lot of sort of amoral things, but he's sort of neutral. Um, is Daenerys good? She, like, frees slaves, but also kills people constantly. So, so you're in this sort of murky water on who's good, who's bad, but, um, uh, but at the same time, I also, you know, it's like, you know, we're in this, in because of that ambiguity, it's hard to find people to root for unless they have other qualities i think daenerys has other qualities like as a leader and she has these weird um uh feelings about slavery and people in slavery and, and Tyrion's so smart and funny and so we're we're rooting for him because of those reasons but a lot of characters like rob i had no opinion on him at all when he died i was like okay i don't i don't particularly care uh he just to me just didn't feel like uh it felt like a real person, I guess, but not somebody I, I had any feelings on one way or the other. Rob is kind of, um, yeah, he's, he's not a particularly, like, uh, personality-abundant character. He's kind of, he's kind of like a, a blank slate. Uh, and a, a lot of the Stark men are, to be honest. Um, John is kind of uh, yeah, seems the like same John's way, the too. Same he's thing, kind yeah. of like... I'm going to grumble and be serious because I'm a serious person. And <laughs> right, but he has, <laughs> a, he has an interplay because he, he's sort of the straight man to, um, to uh, what's-her-face? Um, what, yeah, uh, right. So, so she can play, sort of play the, um, the straight man in that case, and so there's a little bit of interplay there, and there was also the interplay with him and his, his dad on his, his, um, his birth mother and that whole thing. So... There was, like, more there. For Rob, you know, he's just like, I'm just trying to be, you know, the man my father wanted me to be. You know, like, it's just... Nah. Yeah, <laughs> they do take it for granted because you're supposed to root for Rob because it's him or Joffrey. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know what I mean? In that it's conflict, like, yeah. I was rooting for him on paper. I was just, I, emotionally, I had no investment in him winning. Um, I'd much rather pretty much anybody else <laughs> just because he's just, he's like a wet noodle, you know? He's just not... Yeah. Rob's also not a point of view character in the books. So all those oh. chapters are from Catelyn's point of view. Interesting. So I think that's part of it. Well, you know, and that's something that uh, you know I've had discussions about the book with uh, other people about this because I I couldn't stand Catelyn. Um, <laughs> I I and I think I mentioned this on another podcast, but I I just I could not. I felt like everything, and it, this was this. I know the book offers perspective, and this is why I I brought this up. Um, but I felt like everything that happened in season one, you know, she's the one who uh, accuses Tyrion for no particular reason for, about the whole, um, uh, I guess it was the, the murder. No, it wasn't. No, no, no. He, she accuses him of pushing um, it was, uh, Bran it was, out the window, someone, right? Someone was in Bran's room with a knife. Uh, 
and she thinks that he's right it was the assassination right the assassination thing which ends because it's a blonde hair assumes it was him and then uh because of that then they take ned gets put in custody or gets attacked that's like that episode five turning point and then she just keeps making decisions that for me and with rob you know she she lets jamie go to you know as an exchange for her kids and so for me the whole back and forth with with catelyn just really got on my nerves but i also know that the book goes from her perspective so you have this internal monologue that's probably a lot more compelling than what we got because and it's not michelle fairley's um, uh, fault at all it's just that i didn't get that perspective from her and so i just felt like she was acting like an irrational person that didn't seem to do anything right ever and then she died yeah it's tough well yeah she seems irrational but the thing like because she's driven purely by her love for her children um i that i found that interesting because she's one of the few characters who could give a crap about the, the war or the kingdom or whatever all she all she cares about is making sure her kids are safe and yeah she does some things that kind of end up screwing her in the end and her son but it's it, 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 the place that it comes from i think is a genuine place that's and it's you know yeah it's if she were to consult with you know rob's military strategists they probably would have told her not to do those things um but i do feel like that as a character the things that she does uh they come from an honest place and i kind of like and i do like that about her i i, I like catlin um obviously from our yeah from our position as viewers we see that and you're like what are you doing you're ruining everything yeah no exactly <laughs> and maybe that's what i'm looking at because i mean and we're also not made to care she doesn't i guess she doesn't take she takes agency on about her kids but it you know you're when the world sucks so much it's like it seems like a very short-sighted option you know you're like yes okay you can save your kids now but in like 10 years you know joffrey will have you know it you know it instated martial law over every single little you know encampment and your kids are going to have a terrible life and it's all because you didn't take action like on a greater scale not involving your kids like you weren't looking out for their future you're looking out for their their present and that's not helpful and so you know i'm like i could root for a character like Tyrion because you're hoping although at the end of season two you realize that no matter what he did he was going to end up out of uh out of the the position of the king's hand um but, you know, you're rooting for him because he's directly opposing the bad guys. And you're rooting for Rob, again, on paper, because he's directly opposing the bad guys. But Catelyn's just looking out for her kids in the very immediate present sense and not thinking, like, hmm, maybe it would be good if my son won the war because then we could just get the kids back and not have to worry about it or whatever the situation is. Um, and so that was my problem with it. It's like it's not that I didn't that I get it. She's a you know, really intense mother and wants to look out for her kids. But as a viewer and knowing the terrible people that and she knows the terrible people they're up against to make decisions that are going to put them into a, a worse position and, and her side into a worse position just was so frustrating to me and to be fair rob was no better in that department because he well with the wife broke his yes, with, yes, the fray, yes. with the phrase and and married uh talisa who's a, a different person than the, the books talisa right. invented she did the same thing in the books um, but yeah, so that might just be a thing with the Starks in general. I again, like with back with Ned, it's like, I don't care about, the Starks don't care about all this political stuff. They just care about what's right and doing what's right and each other and their family. Well, yes, except for, but again, I, I appreciated Ned because I felt like she, uh, I felt like he was, um, he was making 
he was he was moving into. First of all, at that point, we only have a very narrow view of who the uh, Lannisters are. Um, you basically have the Starks and the Lannisters. That's like all of season one. That's that's really the main thing. You don't have. Um, you know the phrase and all these other characters they they show up and they're in the background but they're not as important um it's really about the lannisters and you felt like ned was good and the lannisters were bad and they were fighting each other and then ned dies and you're like oh okay i guess that's you know how the show's gonna go um but now the, the sides are so complex that um that it's i feel like it's less clear and so so when catelyn's not taking direct action against this other huge side uh, that was that was my problem with it. So so Ned, I even though he was making choices that would never work, yeah, they were at least. Uh, it was at that point it was simple enough. The situation was simple enough according to us as viewers that I I still I could follow him. Yeah, it's it's that's true to an extent. I think of almost every character, mm-hmm. um, just because of the nature of who, just basic you know the basic. Uh, what a human being is it's like obviously they can't know everything that's going on in the story only we as the viewers can right. but um, it's interesting when you get into um, I don't know I don't think ha- that much later in the books it should be like and it's even they, they've been dropping it uh, a lot in these previous seasons about um, the characters who are kind of having the most influence over these events mm-hmm. um, and there's a definite um there's a it gets clearer and clearer as you go that the people who you think are the opposing sides are not actually the opposing sides. There's actually like there's something going on behind the scenes that we're only just seeing, mm-hmm. and that and that's just part of what the show the nature of the show is these kind of back back room layered and layered yeah, yeah, yeah. political intrigue stuff and people manipulating other people. Right. So I, you know it, and there's very few characters because again because of this is a show about the war between these kings, right? Mm-hmm. So there's very few characters that aren't that, that aren't, you know, that their lives aren't about all that. You know, we, we don't get a point of view character who's just a commoner. Right. Right, they're um, all royalty or related to people who are important. Yeah, for sure. Exactly, yeah. So it's it's tough to kind of get that perspective of someone who's like, I don't care about any of this stuff. I just want to not die today. Right, <laughs> and maybe, priority. you know, honestly, if Catelyn had been not married not previously married to Ned and not been, you know, the the head of the Stark household and not been related to that family and just been a commoner looking out for her kids and they were sort of giving a human perspective, I might even have appreciated that more. It was just like, you know, it's that position of celebrity where, you know, people are like, well, I'm a, you know, I'm a celebrity. Why does it matter if, you know, somebody who can say this who's not a celebrity can do whatever? But it's like you have clout and a platform as a celebrity or as an important person that somebody who is a common person does not. So your actions affect not just you, but everybody who is under you. All of the, the people who have sworn to you, all of your your armies, the rest of the world who's going to suffer if you don't win this thing. Like, it's not just about you. Whereas a peasant or, like, somebody who just lives in, you know, Winterfell or lives around Winterfell and just serves the Starks, uh, if they were just looking out for their family, you'd be like, all right, that makes sense. I mean, nobody's looking out for the, the only people they are responsible for are their own is their own family but Catelyn had a responsibility to her whole king you know her own little uh it's not really a kingdom i guess but she had a responsible responsibility to winterfell and, and and to to the north and so i was just I, that's why it was frustrating that um you know that she that she made these decisions because it wasn't just about her kids it was about all of it yeah yeah and it should be i think it should be because you, you know it's obviously the show as the show shows us she did do the wrong thing she did screw up, and Rob did yeah. screw up as well. 
they did the wrong things because of, you know, their personal feelings. Right. Uh, because of love, both of them, really. Yeah, that's true. Um, <laughs> they, they both got killed because of love. Right. Um, that's the message of Game of Thrones. And I worry that might be Tyrion's uh, downfall, too, since that's um, been such a big plot point. Uh, my lips are sealed. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting that, yeah, because they chose to put their personal feelings, their love for someone else, over this kind, over their political aspirations and their responsibilities uh, as uh, governors of all these people in this land, that was their downfall. And I, that's definitely a big part of what the show is saying about politics, I think, mm-hmm. is that it's actually kind of similar to House of Cards in that way, is that politics is something that your, your personal feelings can't factor in at all. And if you do, you know, the sharks will be on you like that. Right, you have because, to be pragmatic about it. Yeah, yeah, you have to be pragmatic, you have to be cold, you have to make decisions that are only affected by what's best for you. Um, and the characters so far who have been succeeding the most are the people who do exactly that, And which is why I think it's important to get a character like Daenerys, who genuinely does seem to act not just out of a desire for power, and not really almost at all out of a desire for power, but just what she believes she is owed and what she believes is her right, and also what she believes is... Right, and ethical, and as she does with the freeing of the slaves. So it's good that we, I think it's good that we don't just have characters like I said on the House of Cards podcast, that are characters, on that show it's just like all the characters seem to be so slimy and evil. But on Game of Thrones we do have characters who seem to act, you know, genuinely out of uh, the goodness of their hearts as much as that can be said in this world. Right. So and it's, it's it, not just all these awful people. And I think it was really hammered home in that final scene in, in season three. I really, yeah. I love that. That's that a great was, scene. That's a great, great scene because it's, it's, it, it was reminiscent of the first season's final scene with Daenerys. Um, I would not be, I've seen, I actually think almost every season has ended either with her or with a climax like around her. Um, it's alternated because I remember the second season ended with all the White Walkers. Right, that was the um, white. That was the white walker. That was the last scene, but she still had a finale. You know, she has still had a climax in that. In that. That's that, true. The whole that, thing in the in the, the house of the undying. Which, that's right. That was in that episode. Yeah, and I, you know, I honestly wasn't uh, too enthralled. With, actually, I really liked everything with call. You know, with her hallucinations in that mm-hmm. scene in that episode. It was the um, the final freeing of the dragons and everything. It just I, the logic, and the effects and the way it was it, a bizarre scene. It was really. Weird. I was like. You mean they could just breathe fire and get out? Like, what was the point of that? That was a weird. That was really yeah. strange. And then, and also the other thing, and this is this is this is a, a problem I have with, and it's actually interesting in the Hobbit. Um, speaking of dragons, uh, they don't they don't just avoid this altogether for the most part. But they tend not to meld CG uh, fire with real fire. You know, when you have a dragon breathing fire on something and then have it on fire afterwards, if you see them too close together. They look really dumb, and that scene, yeah. the uh, who, who's the guy who dies, the the house. The oh, dying is guy. it um, Piet Pri? I think. Right. I think that was the same. Right, right, and so he he gets lit on fire because they breathe fire on him, but it's like CG fire, which I don't have a problem with, because they're CG dragons that you know, like it looks fine, but then the contrast of that with real fire, I don't know, it just looked very strange. Yeah, the CG on the whole, I think, is very good, especially with the dragons. No, and it is good. Yeah. It's good. It's good, but it's it, it can feel just a little off if you're if you put it into. It's not good enough to stand um, right next to a real version of the same thing. 
So you know, I think the problem might have been there is that the previous episode was the was Blackwater, where they had I, yeah. I'm guessing a lot of their special effects budget. So with this, they might have had to. I think that's, to that's a good spend point. less time and money on that stuff in the finale. I totally agree. I actually and and so and I thought the effects in that that episode were amazing. Yeah. Um, uh, although I will say in that episode, as much as I enjoyed it, I also thought uh, the it was good. But and I've mentioned this before, you really should see Spartacus, uh, just because, just because the the scale of battle, like I feel like in each new show, Game of Thrones has set a standard for production value budget that previously was I think held by Rome because Rome was like the most expensive show HBO had ever made, um, and the the sets and everything were just beyond like detailed, very very intense, uh, and now Game of Thrones is just completely not even close. It's so much so far ahead of that. Um, but I also feel other shows set different bars too. Spartacus, I feel, set a bar for uh, the way combat is choreographed and how it looks. Um, it's why shows like Vikings and Game of Thrones, when they do choreography for the fights, they just don't, they're not nearly as enthralling. As, as cool as it was when um, Daenerys uh, uh, freed the, um, the Unsullied and all of that with the dragons, that was cool, but the, the fighting... Um, there's just no time given for that, that sort of intense fight choreography that I really, really enjoyed. And Spartacus really set that bar. And then with Blackwater, getting back to that, um, there are some massive battles in Spartacus that are just breathtaking and so cool and, and they just work so well. And there's a lot of green screening you sort of get in the feel of the aesthetic, so it's not as high budget as Game of Thrones. Um, but, you know, there's catapults and there's, you know, huge, massive things going on. And, and for me, um, Blackwater, as cool as it was, um, and all the hype it got, it was really sad for me because I was like, if you people just watched Spartacus, you would have gotten this A, sooner, and B, I would argue, better. Um, but anyway, but Blackwater was a great, great episode, and I, I think that's possible. They might have blown their, um, they might have blown their effects budget on that because the season finale just, it was both cluttered and then there were these weird moments of, I think it was the editing in that scene and also the CG. It was just weird. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, I, just to talk about the fights the fights in this show a little more, I agree, because of um, the fact that there aren't that many epic battles in the story, Right. the fight scenes that you get are very much like these one-on-one sword duels or like these uh, one-on-a-couple <laughs> that you'll get. Um, so yeah, it's definitely the fight choreography in those, I think, is very good. But the scale it's fine, and you know, different. it's it's probably realistic. That's the other thing about Spartacus. It's 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 absurd the things they do. I mean, they're they're it's you know, imagine three hundred as they do ridiculous things in three hundred. It's the same sort of uh, style. It was clearly inspired by three hundred in many ways. Um, but I will say also, you, your feelings about three hundred, one way or another, as a, as a um, as a movie, uh, it certainly was interesting to watch the combat. And if it wasn't, that movie would have really tanked because you know nobody that was, that was all there was to that film. So, um, so I feel like the the beauty that they found in 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 people fighting, um, it, whether or not it was historically accurate what they were doing or anything uh, aside, was really important. And so you know when you have a show like Vikings, which is really going for historical accuracy, when they all just run at each other and just start like you know squabbling and pushing at each other and stuff, and it it's probably very realistic. That's probably exactly what happened. But it's not that interesting to watch, and they're getting better at it in that show. And it's here. I'm sure this is very similar to medieval fighting, you know, where they all just run at each other and sort of wail on each other. But it's not. It's not nearly as compelling as like 
grappling and jumping and all these cool things that they do in these other shows. So um, it's not a problem for me. It's just I, I have that direct contrast in my head. And it would for me, it would just the show would be even better if there was just um, more time given to it. Um, one of the things they do in, in Spartacus is they slow down time. There's a lot of slow motion. And so while that feels like a gimmick, what it also does is people who put in time into the fight choreography on the tech, you know, on the pre-production side, get their 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 um their work gets showcased. They're like, look at the thing we spent, I'm sure, a lot of time teaching them how to do, and so they could do this fight, uh, and so we can see it in sort of more detail. Um, so without being absurd, I feel like they could maybe cut it a little better so that we really get a good feel for these fights because you know I want to see how good Jamie is. I want to see how good um, you know uh, Brienne is at fighting. You know, instead of just the and and the one scene I think they really did well with that was uh, was was Bronn in um, in the first season where he fights uh, he's he's Tyrion's champion. Yeah, that was awesome. That was really <laughs> really really well done. But I don't think the show's ever been that good uh, in the fighting sequences anyway. Um, since then, yeah, it's it's um it's interesting that the way that fighting in this show and in this world is kind of um it it becomes a part of who the characters are, especially a character like uh, Jamie. Right. Um. That's that's in season four. Will 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 be part of his arc because the because now that he's lost it, it was part of last season too. He's now that he's lost his hand, um, what he was known for. Was being a sword fighter, right? Yeah, it was being this incredible sword fighter, and now he's lost that, and he has go. He has this kind of identity crisis. It's like, well, this this is this was who I am. This is who I was. Right now, now what do I have? Now, who am I as a person? So it's um, yeah, fighting, and especially the way that fighting also reflects just in the way they move their bodies, who the characters are. Right. Like I think we got that when uh, in the fight in season three when uh, the Hound fought Beric Dondarrion, and we get these the way that. Um, the hound moves is these kind of lumbering motions and the and these big swings is just all power and and you know and force whereas uh whereas Beric Dondarrion was a lot more um he's more agile but he's also kind of um he's smarter about it like he's right. he's he's moving he's making moves he's anticipating the hound's moves whereas the hound is just like if I think I can hit him once he's done right <laughs> So right. it's interesting the way that they that they do that in the choreography. Right, and, um, and, and that's the thing is that I know they're putting effort into it. It's not even the fight choreography isn't good. It's just that I don't know if maybe it's the way it's shot. And the why I liked that scene was, was decent, but why I really like the Braun fight is that they give like five minutes, maybe it's only a couple minutes, but it feels like a good five minutes of just one fight. And you instantly from then on, I don't need to see it again, but what I know now is that Braun fights like that. And so, you know... For example, what it helped really helped was right before Blackwater, he has those those um, dialogue uh, back and forth with with the Hound, and he's you know they're they're sort of sniping at each other and they almost get into a fight. And in my head, I'm like, okay, the Hound's this big guy. We sort of saw him uh, a little bit uh, sort of in the first season with the jousting. We saw him sort of you know move around and we sort of get an idea of what he's like. Uh, and we also know. Um, what Bronn fights like, and so in our head we're like, oh, this would be so cool to see. And although it doesn't happen, that was the boost that got. Jamie, on the other hand, we hear about Brienne being such a good fighter and Jamie being such a good fighter, and we're so excited. Oh, I wonder how they would fight, you know, in real real life. And I just didn't feel like they were given enough time to really showcase that. Um, 
uh, nearly as much as, as, as like Braun did or, or, or even the Hound. So so I, I just think that it would be interesting if they sort of gave a little bit more breathing room to those moments, especially when you have so much other time filled with nothing. Um, so uh, so yeah, we'll see we'll see how it how it goes into the uh, the the last couple of seasons. And I, and I know that. Um, uh, conflict is probably going to be at a much higher level now. People are people weren't necessarily at each other's throat in season one, uh, but they are getting more and more, you know, direct conflict with one another. So I'm interested to see how that pans out. I'm sure you have plenty of thoughts on that. But <laughs> oh yeah, um, season four is a is going to be a big season uh, for sure. Um, it's funny just looking at like <laughs> the episode names to a non reader would seem so innocuous. Mm-hmm. But I look at them and I'm like, oh, that's coming. Oh, boy. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's, it's definitely, I think, it's, it's going to be a lot of fun just um, to see the way that they pace it and the way that they kind of go about it, assuming, knowing uh, where the third season left off and what is about to happen, mm-hmm. uh, just in terms of the rest of the book, and then what they'll bring in from the next from the following two books, which is going to be even weirder because those two books take place at the same time. Right, right. I, um, I so that's heard gonna, about that. that's going to make com- complicate things even more um, in terms of writing it and in terms of keeping the same uh, timeline and continuity. Well, I mean, the simple thing there is is or the the simple way to approach it is to just put the mo- the books next to each other and and then you know give time out to like different stories as you're going through and sort of don't 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 do the one book per season treatment that would make any oh, yeah. sense. Um, but to do it sort of like that, and I'm sure they will. It's just, yeah, you're right. And the way it's gonna, the structure is gonna be versus how it's been previously will be totally different. Yeah, and what well it worries me because um, now because they're getting really close to catching up with, with George R. R. Martin, and I know he's like you said earlier, he's saying, well, maybe they'll just finish it up as a movie, or maybe they'll do this or that. I, <laughs> if I were him, I would be shaking in my boots because. There, he has not even put out book six yet, and they are coming up on book four, which means also book five. Right. So I would not be at this point. I would not be surprised in the least if the show overtakes the books, and um, a, a lot of fans would book fans would be upset about that. I wouldn't be thrilled by that, but at this point, it's like, well, you know what? The show's getting it done. So right, if, the show must if, go on. <laughs> if if he can't write the books in time, like, sorry, but well. <laughs> In some ways, this might be a good thing, <clears throat> sort of inspire him to to get a move on. But he doesn't seem to be moving very fast uh, on that front. Um, as somebody who doesn't read the books, but I, you know, I've read I've read some um, uh, people, you know, some agi- some of the agitation from the uh, community about it, and so I I totally get that. Um, the other thing that's interesting, this is just a total side note, but I just wanted to point it out. Um, I would be interested in a side story or something else going on. It's actually, they announced Telltale Games, who is absolutely amazing Walking Dead game. Just absolutely groundbreaking, stunning work. Um, they're working on a Game of Thrones game that's going to be parallel a parallel storyline. Uh, or, well, it's, it's not going to be a prequel, they said. So it'll take place somewhere else in the world of Game of Thrones. Um, and so th- that's, to me, really compelling. Uh <clears throat> And it also opens up some, maybe perhaps some options for the show if they really run out of material. I know he had talked about, he had signed a deal, or at least maybe the rights to a prequel uh, about some character, um, Duncan, Sir Duncan or something. Oh yeah, the, the, the Tales of Duncan Egg. Yeah, he's written uh, novellas, or maybe they're, I think they're novellas, um, 
that that they take place like a century before the main story. Right. I've also heard that uh, suggestions that they take a break from the main story and do a miniseries prequel about uh, King Robert's Rebellion. Right. That would kind of directly lead in to Game of Thrones season one. So I mean, like they're not bad ideas. I just yeah, exactly. Like I, those are both things that I would like to see, obviously. But I'd kind of just rather that they <laughs> finish the story they're doing right now. Just like I'd rather that George R. R. Martin wasn't writing those things and that he was just finish the story and then go back to them. Absolutely, and that's that's another argument too. Is like you know, stop spending time on these other things. Go back to the uh, to the books that you you haven't finished yet. Um, one of the things I really liked on the first, by the way, the this is just a, again another sidebar, but the Blu-ray for the Game of Thrones season one. I'm sure it's true of the other seasons, but I only have the first season. Uh, is absolutely just it's a beautiful box and the the content's awesome and the way the menus are laid out is so cool. But there's an there's an extra feature on it about the first men and their interaction with the children of the forest, which were like mm. these weird creatures and this this whole backstory was so fascinating. Part of me wants to see when the first men arrived in Westeros and seeing that whole storyline. Like I, I care a lot less about a, you know Sir Duncan. I want to go back like way back to the beginning and see you know where this whole old god religion and the and the seven and all these different things came from and see you know the children of the forest and the white walkers in the beginning that to me would be really compelling and really like sort of like uh in avatar in in that episode of with Juan that gives a context to the whole universe uh, yeah that could be really cool too well uh, yeah um i'm gonna be saying these words i think a lot in the, f- in the upcoming weeks but without spoiling anything <laughs> um depending on how fast a certain character's storyline advances, um, some of that stuff will be coming into the fore pretty soon. Oh, not cool. like, not problem. I would guess not in terms of flashbacks, almost certainly not in terms of flashbacks to that, but uh, learning more about that kind of, that aspect of the mythology. Um, and even the books haven't really revealed that much about it. Right, there's, it wasn't a lot. It was just enough. It was just a taste to like get the idea of, oh, the children of the forest were a real thing, and, and the trees that they all pray to had something to do with it. And, and I don't know, to me, it just, it was so cool. It was such a, a sort of a different thing than, you know, dragons or whatever is sort of typical fantasy, but this was more felt like druid, you know, type. Irish, you know, they film in Ireland, they have this sort of Celtic look to everything, and, and they also film in Iceland and all these places, but it just, and, and so it's sort of this Nordic or Celtic and all these different, these mythologies that are not sort of, sort of typically portrayed in fantasy, and so I would be compelled to, to watch that as a as a, somebody who hasn't read the books. Yeah, and it's, a, you know, it's a plus definitely now that, like I said earlier, the, the uh, characters are so spread out that you can tell those stories and not really feel like it's wasting time. Right. Right, because you're 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 giving backstory and some context. Exactly, yeah, and not, and also not feel like um, the rest of the story has is intruding on that. It's so it's good. Um, yeah, and it's, but, um, I'm curious, you not having read the books, if you have any predictions or just like guesses or feelings about what you things you think might happen in this upcoming season. I'm curious. The only thing I've got is this and i have because i try not to make predictions um because there's just no (laughs) point there's no point um but uh my only thing the only thing i've got going on is that uh, i heard a really compelling theory um that i i still hold to uh that there's a so the name of this series which hasn't been brought up in the show at all in in or or whatever is is a song of ice and fire and so uh, i know there's a there was a sword called ice and there's this that weird flaming sword um, but we also have a character named Jon Snow, and we also have Daenerys Targaryen, who's like a 
this dragon lady, you know, whatever. Um, and so I don't know if this is true or if this is accurate to the uh, to what's going to happen next. But to me, um, I, I feel like they're going to be sort of the central players moving forward into the uh, sort of the final moments and the, the conclusion to the whole saga. Um, they may not be like the main, main characters, but I feel like that's it's going to end up revolving around them, which is weird. It's not it's not they aren't my favorite characters per se. Um, I would rather a song of Tyrion Lannister, but um, but the but Daenerys and and Jon Snow just because of their the cold and hot and the ice and fire and the winter and summer and that that whole thing to me seems like a more direct comparison. And the other thing is in the show aesthetically that's what we get. We see Jon Snow in the snow in the cold all the time. That's all he ever gets to do is be cold and freezing and try and warm up and doesn't work. And then you have Daenerys who seems to be in this perpetual summer out in. Um, out across the sea and so and she has dragons and they breathe fire and it's all hot uh and she can survive heat without getting hurt and so uh so that that's my very basic broad prediction uh as far as individual characters you know i, I really i'll have to think about it maybe <clears throat> as we move into the the series uh, as we start doing our um our weekly podcast uh we'll we'll talk about um maybe predictions that are more immediate but i i for as a broad sort of stroke that that has to be my my guess for now that's very yes that's very interesting um well yeah you're absolutely right the that ice and fire as opposing forces are really important to the series in general uh the show hasn't really gotten into into the idea of um uh the prince that was promised uh and well as as azora high is has been a thing because melisandre has been doing that whole thing with stannis uh but the prince that was promised is a separate prophecy I don't think the show is even mentioned, but there's a whole thing about he, he's going to come and bring justice and his is the song of ice and fire. Oh, um, so yeah, yeah they haven't mentioned it at all. I mean, they, this, you know, it's like, I know the books are called, but I don't see the parallel unless they, they sort of do this, this, this thing with, with John. I, that's all I got. Yeah. And the other thing it is it we hasn't don't... been a big part of the books either, but it's just kind of something that's in the background that you kind of know he's going to pull out of his sleeve in the last book and that it's going to be a thing. Well, the other, I mean, what they've also set him up as is Jon Snow is the, the son of Ned Stark, and he's the snow, he's snow because of um, Winterfell. But we have no idea who his mother is um, as as viewers. I don't know if it's revealed in the book, but uh, so that's also a mystery that he can sort of at any, any point be like, oh, by the way, his mother was such and such, so that was really yeah, irrelevant. there are some, that has not been revealed in the books, although there are some extremely compelling theories that, that you can find um, that definitely play in uh to what you're saying so yeah for sure that's definitely that's one of those mysteries that um it's interesting to look at what the show has been setting up as well mm-hmm. because that that had you know that has to be one of the and i actually heard a thing um a rumor i think i think this is actually david benioff and db weiss have said this in an interview when they were appro- when they approached george R. R. martin about doing this as a show he was kind of talking to them and trying to gauge uh their engagement with the series so he asked them who do you think Jon Snow's mother is and I guess they answered correctly oh wow <laughs> and that's how that's when he knew he was like all right these guys know what they're doing so I can entrust them with my work wow that's an interesting, so it's interesting that I think it might be interesting to look at for look for clues not just in the books but in the show to see what they included because now, now they know right and so I think that's I think that's important and clearly they've made it so that you know he that sort of implies that he's that Jon Snow really is that kind of character uh, and he's from the outset, you know, this, this, he's in the first episode and he's in 
all of the series going through. So, um, and he's also directly involved with the White Walkers, which are one of the biggest and most important things. Um, actually, to rest to Westeros, the two big things you've got going on right now in terms of threats to the kingdom are dragons from across the sea, fire, and uh, the White Walkers, which are you know yeah. ice. So, um, so certainly there's this conflict between them, and 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 you have Daenerys with the dragons and Jon with the White Walkers. So. I don't know. We'll see how it pans out. Um, but moving forward, we're just going to... Uh, uh, I just want to let everyone know that we will be uh, talking about Season 4 um, as we go through the season. We'll, we'll do little podcast uh, episodes that are shorter than this um, after uh, each episode uh, and sort of in preparation for the subsequent episode. Uh, and again, Josh will have a, a much better foresight on what's going to happen, <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm sure he will refrain from spoiling. Uh, absolutely and uh i uh and i'll and i'll have to just guess and and see what happens next because i have no idea where this series is headed uh and hopefully we can sort of um this the series will sort of get out of this rut that we talked about earlier with the the slow the slow burn before a sudden takeoff um but we'll see we'll see how it goes um season four is going to start uh sunday april 6th the episode is called two swords i know what that refers to (laughs) you're going to find out (laughs) Um, so, and yeah, next week we'll be back to talk about that episode. All right. And, uh, so thank you so much for joining me, Josh. And, uh, thanks for, thanks for listening.